It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Professor Aaron McNeil. He's an associate professor in the Department of Biology at Dalhousie University. And uh, Professor Aaron McNeil is here to talk to us about the East Coast fishing situation, which has been in the news quite a bit lately. And uh, for those people that uh, may not know about what's going on, in, or I guess around mid-September, the uh, Shubenacadie First Nation launched a moderate livelihood lobster fishery along the coast of the southwestern part of Nova Scotia, and its fishers set out uh, an estimated about 250 traps at that time, and that was equivalent to about one commercial boat. And uh, with that, uh, and so the question is, at that time, is it going to harm the stocks of the lobster because it is outside of the commercial fishery, and it is the indigenous uh, uh, fishers uh, fishing for a moderate livelihood as given to them from uh, from a uh, uh, from agreements a long time ago, 1700s. So, uh, Professor Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Good to be with you. Now, uh, we're talking to you about this article that's uh, in in the conversation. I, I understand you did not write the article, but you're you do you're well aware of this situation and the article itself. Yeah, the article is written by a colleague here at Dalhousie, and it's very much in line with what uh, scientists um, that are aware of the various fisheries uh, in the area uh, understand about the new the new commercial fishery. Yes, since this started, things have escalated, things have changed. Uh, initially, it was potentially thought to be by some of the non-Indigenous fishers as illegal. It took a little while before uh, the Canadian government uh, representatives came on board and said, no, this is not illegal. Um, and and then also uh, it escalated, of course, again with, uh, with lobsters, the, the lobsters being uh, taken from the indigenous um, uh, fishers uh, where they were storing them. There's fires set. Uh, there's been some, some violence in that regard. Do we now know or do we have any, uh, any clear idea of, of if this uh, fishing outside of the commercial fishing, fishing time, if harvesting for a moderate livelihood by the indigenous fishers is something that is a concern from a conservation perspective? Yeah, so you know, part of what's gone on here is a lot of confusion about what people are talking about when they're talking about um, various fisheries. So there's a couple of contextual things here. Uh, the first one is most of what the conflict is about is what is in St. Mary's Bay. St. Mary's Bay, the bay is a long, thin bay right on the nose of Nova Scotia, and it's one of the two most highly productive lobster fishing areas in the province. So first of all, we're talking about St. Mary's Bay. Secondly, um, and this is, I think, one major point of confusion, is that there are actually three fisheries operating at St. Mary's Bay. Okay. So one one is the kind of standard non-native commercial fishery. The second one is this new moderate livelihood fishery. And the third one is a food, social, and ceremonial fishery. And much of the what the um, 
commercial fishermen. When I say commercial fishermen, I'm speaking about the non-native commercial right. fishermen here. When the commercial fishermen have spoken to us and been upset, perhaps, at, at what we have said as scientists, they are talking about the food, uh, social, ceremonial fishery. And their contention is that there are many, many more traps in the bay on the order of five to 8,000. However, I have no information about the number of traps. I only have the reports, and, and it's been even reported in the media where fishermen are saying these sorts of things. That fishery is uh, quite unknown about what its conservation impact is. It, it is not at a level where I personally would be concerned about it, but it is at a level where, you know, the more data that we have about it, the more we'll be able to answer the types of questions you're asking. And then the third, this third, the other fishery is the new moderate livelihood fishery. And in that case, the number of traps are so small that I am very comfortable saying it's going to have negligible conservation impact, even in the context of St. Mary's Bay. Well, that's really interesting uh, because I don't think we've had it broken down to us, uh, certainly in the news and what we're hearing about in terms of these three different fisheries that are happening. Uh, We've only heard about the moderate livelihood fishery. Now, you're saying that the the non-Indigenous or the commercial fishers are concerned about the food and ceremonial uh, fishing. Well, they're not making any distinction. Oh, okay. So, so, and, and there needs to be a distinction because of my understanding is legally these are two different fisheries. And, you know, they're the um, First Nations people in Canada have rights. They have a different set of rights than non-native people do. Mm-hmm. And one of their, one of the rights has to do with food, uh, social and ceremonial fisheries. Things like harvesting whales in the Arctic, for example, would, mm-hmm. would fall under a, a similar uh, sort of, sort of uh, a rule. So, you know the, the the distinction between the two is very important because the 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 summer fishery, as it's often colloquially called, the food and ceremonial fishery, has been going on for a number of years, and so it could be that you know what we're seeing is tension that has built up over how that fishery has been conducted, and it's now blown up because of this new additional uh, moderate livelihood commercial fishery that has started. That is my my. Uh, sort of guess about why it has gone up, but that's just my opinion. That's nothing obviously scientific. This may be outside of the scope of of what we want to talk about, but certainly even though these commercial fishers may have issue and may be concerned, certainly they do not have the right to take things into their own hands and and burn bans and burn down storage areas and and take the lobsters uh, of indigenous fishers, uh, destroy them or or you know take their nets and their their uh, and all of these things that we hear about. Yeah, and it, you know, as someone born and raised in Nova Scotia, um, and you know, through this COVID period, Nova Scotia has has been through you know unimaginable loss with mm. the mass shooting, with the loss of the helicopter crew. Right. Various things that if you go around the province, there are a lot of sort of Nova Scotia strong stickers and a real sense of pride that we've come together as a province to address COVID. And, and we have. We haven't had community spread since May. Mm. And Nova Scotians should be, and, and Maritimers and Atlantic provinces in general should be very proud of that. It speaks to a culture that does help each other out. But to have this blow up in this way with people acting so uncivilly towards their fellow uh, Nova Scotians is, to me personally, usually upsetting. 
you know, I'm glad you raised those other points uh, because it was, this has been a very strange year in so many ways. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, those two very important things that started at the beginning of this year uh, for loss in the East Coast and for the loss of, of uh, Canada. Um, and, you know, I, I guess that does play on the psyche uh, and uh, and just how uh, people are uh, feeling uh, the tension of the pandemic in regard to everything else that, that's going on as well. It's, it's, it's a stressful time, yeah. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Now, we've been, what we're talking about, the Mi'kmaq, uh, this is the inherent right that they have for their traditions and customs, of course, goes back to the, uh, under the peace and friendship treaties that were signed in the 1700s, as I mentioned at the top of the, the show. And uh, that's in the Constitution under Section 35, that's reaffirmed by the Supreme Court, which allows them to have a right to harvest fish for food, social and ceremonial purposes, and the right to fish for a moderate livelihood. So I guess the other thing that the article pointed out was, and this was new to me, I didn't realize there was a time when lobster uh, molt and their shells become softer uh, if they're if they're harvested and they uh, are either not able to be kept uh, they're thrown back in but but because of that they have a higher mortality rate yeah I mean there's a, there's a couple of issues that, that relate to this I mean mortality is one of them so you know obviously lobsters are invertebrates and they have an exterior shell that, that is in lieu of having a spine or bone mm-hmm. so if, if they don't have that shell, if it's soft and weak, then they're, they are all obviously more vulnerable to capture. So, you know, in Nova Scotia, if you capture a female lobster that's full of eggs, you have to throw it back. And so, and so that the, the, the animal can reproduce. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for females that have a softer shell, that of course you would expect that there'd be a higher mortality rate. I don't know. I don't know. And, and it may not be well known what exactly the mortality rate difference is, mm. but it's probably, you know, a percent, some some sizable percent. Yeah, it, that's what I was just about to ask. Do we know what that percentage might be? Yeah, I, I don't have any good data for it here. You know, unfortunately, because the stock is doing so well, mm. there's not a ton of research going on right now because it's, you know, resources are being, um, you know, uh, sent elsewhere. Right. Aaron, what's different about this this situation that we find ourselves in now because this has been going on for like 20 30 years at least you know there was there's other communities that uh face this uh, i think a burnt church uh, some time ago as well yeah i mean i, I was a kid of course i remember burnt church but i, I wasn't uh, as aware of, of, of the, the ins and outs of the various details i mean in some sense nothing's changed in the sense that uh you know there, that violence has erupted in a way that's completely unacceptable um, but we're also in a state, certainly in Nova Scotia right now, where the lobster fishery is doing so well. It is, it is probably the most successful fishery I can think of right now in the world. I mean, it's a, it is an incredible resource for Nova Scotia. And something people are probably not aware of is that the commercial lobster fishery is the reason that we have sustained coastal communities in Nova Scotia. There's a policy of owner-operators, which means that if you own a license, you have to run the boat. And what that has done is distributed a huge amount of wealth. And we're talking a billion and a half dollars, probably in Nova Scotia alone, around the, to these coastal communities. So that this fishery is the most important industry, in my view, in Nova Scotia because of that, because it really sustains these coastal communities. 
And, um, it, and right now it's doing extremely well. I mean, people catches or record catches and, and, and things are going very well. So I think that that's quite different than it was in the 90s. In the 90s, uh, people were more concerned about the status of lobster. So for it to happen again now when catches are so high is, is also upsetting, but the context here is a smaller sub-area of St. Mary's Bay, and it is an area that a lot of fishermen in this, um, what's called lobster fishing area, LFA, LFA 34, it's a lot of, a lot of catch happens there. And the commercial fishery would, you know, traditionally be looking to when the, uh, when their fishery opens in about a month's time, they'd be looking to go into St. Mary's Bay and to get the very high catches that they get at the very start of the season. So lobster catch, partly because they've molted, they're more hungry, they're out there foraging, it's warmer water, so they're more active, and so catches tend to be a lot higher. Right now, or, or in a month's time, on average, they'd be pulling about four to five uh, kilograms every time they pull up a trap. But as the fishery proceeds and the, the temperatures go down, they are losing about 3% of that catch every day. So the very high catches that they're banking on uh, achieving in November um, are, I think in their view, they, they see those catches as being at risk by this um, moderate livelihood fishery happening right now. And I think that that is another possible source of conflict. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we are speaking with Professor Aaron McNeil. He's an associate professor at the Department of Biology in Dalhousie University. He's on the show uh, speaking about a, a colleague's article in the conversation about the ongoing lobster fishery situation in Nova Scotia. And uh, so, Aaron, you mentioned just a little while ago that, that the fishing, the fishery is doing really, really well. Um, it's doing so, it, if it's doing so well, why, why then is there this big concern? I think because what we're talking about is not the whole fishery overall. What we're talking about is fishing that happens in in the local grounds of the people involved, St. Mary's Bay. It's a very highly productive area. There's a lot of catch that goes in there. A lot of people make their livelihood there. And because it's a constrained area, the everything sort of gets amplified up a little bit. You know, uh, the... the a trap in that area uh, is going to have a bigger effect because it's constrained. And so, you know, the, 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 the issue really, to, in my mind, is about, you know, who, about the fish that is the, the lobster that is there and who, who is going to get at it and when. And, you know, a lot of those things are actually not scientific issues. They're, they're political and they're social issues. Mm. And, you know, I, I will say, you know, I'm not, uh, obviously, I'm appalled by the violence that's happened in St. Mary's Bay. But a lot you have to, people probably don't realize is how hard it is to be a commercial lobster fisherman. There's a huge amount of money. A lot of these fishermen are on, on the hook for millions of dollars in loans, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in loans. 
in on on terms that tend to be quite short. They have to pay them back very rapidly. So there's a huge amount of economic pressure on them to knowing that the start of the season is the time where they're going to make their money. That first month is where they're going to make the bulk of their money, and they want to have the best chance of getting as much cash as they can so that not only to make money, but even just to service the debts involved in a fishery. And fisheries go up and they go down. And for people who have a constant income, it may be hard to recognize that as a fisherman, you're dealing with the vagaries of, of weather and seasonality and recruitment of animals, various things that you don't have control over. So each year, there's a huge amount of pressure to, to land as much catch as you can right at the start of the season. And that that is obviously you can understand why somebody would be concerned um, about any anything that would upset that um, way of doing things. And yet this isn't necessarily something new. Uh, certainly both the indigenous and non-indigenous fishers or the non-indigenous fishers would be aware of the fact that this moderate livelihood has been allowed uh, for the indigenous fishers, first of all. And secondly, the size of the fishery. We, we kind of talked about that a little bit, but we know that at the beginning of this, um, about 250 traps were put in. It's about the size of one commercial boat. How many boats go out at any one time during the commercial fishery? Yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. So, so the the current size of the of the new moderate livelihood fishery that the Sabag and Agri have, have initiated is about 500 traps. So okay. that's what it stands at roughly now. Um, but the second thing is within the larger LFA. So this is not just St. Mary's Bay; it's the larger air management area. There are a thousand licenses. And the way that it works is if you have a license, you can, for that LFA, then you're entitled to fish anywhere in that LFA. And there are, you know, there are, of course, social norms about where people fish. But in general, that's kind of how it works. And there's a thousand of those. And each one of those can have 350 traps. So the regular commercial fishery has 350,000 traps. But, but that is the, the scale of that is the whole lobster fishing area. Right. And the Sabaganagadi fishery, the new modern livelihood fishery, is about 500 traps, but that is just within St. Mary's Bay. Mm. The numbers that fishermen have emailed to us is that the, uh, the, the regular commercial fishery is something on the order of 10 to 15,000 traps. But again, I don't have the exact numbers on those to, uh, to know, but that's roughly the numbers we're talking about. So even in that context, if it's 10,000 or 15,000 versus 500, again, you're talking about statistical noise, really, when you're, when you're looking at uh, those two fisheries. Mm. And that's, that, again, that's distinct from the, the food, social, and ceremonial fishery that is also ongoing. That sounds like a lot of lobster being caught. And, and and so if there's a lot of lobster being caught and you're saying it's doing really well, what do we know about lobsters? I know very little about lobsters themselves. Uh, how how quickly do they reproduce? Um, how long do they live? Uh, what's, it, it sounds like there's an awful lot of lobster crawling around on the bottom of the bay. <laughs> there are. I mean, it's... You know, it's un, it's incredible. I mean, we are so lucky in Nova Scotia to have to be at this time where lobster is so abundant and is such a resource for the province. I mean, it really is an incredible uh, species. And and partly the reason that we think that it's increased so much in the last sort of ten to fifteen years has to do with two things. One is slightly warmer water temperatures, 
So uh, just when, you know, any animal has an optimal temperature, but when things are a bit warmer, they're able to eat and grow and reproduce a little bit faster. So that's one issue. The second one is that the previous collapse of ground fish in the Atlantic area, uh, those ground fish are major predators for lobster, uh, for small lobster. And so if you don't have things like cod eating lobster larvae, um, then you're going to have more lobsters. Um, you know, the reproduction is kind of amazing. I mean, they reproduce, um, there's a kind of a two-year cycle. So there's, you know, they mate um, and, and then they gestate uh, for a year and then they have eggs that are, that are kind of cultivated for another full year. So they, there's two full years there between any time that they've been uh, mating. Um, but again, they're, they're, they're hugely productive. I mean, they're just, they're incredible incredible uh, resource uh, for the area. That's, uh, that's very interesting. So uh, how many uh, lobster are, are, are born at any one time, like from one female? Oh, they'll, they'll, if you pull up a lobster, the, the underside of the shell will just be completely full of eggs. Of course, you know, when those, lobster, when those eggs hatch, and you're talking hundreds to thousands per lobster, uh, they have very high mortality early right. on. Any sure. fish population will have very, very high mortality. Yes. So, you know, the survivorship is yep. on the order of a few percent, of right. course. But that's how a lot of fish reproduce another uh, in birds. Fascinating stuff. That's really interesting. Of course, the other thing is that we've heard about is that uh, since this all happened and as it, it, it continued, the, the catch that the indigenous fishers are pulling in for a moderate livelihood, uh, there are some people saying they will not buy the, the lobster from them. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, I've heard that as well. And, you know, that is, I think there has been a, a lack of clarity about the legalities of, of purchasing lobsters. I think that uh, Premier McNeil here has spoken to that a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's up to those buyers to decide whether, uh, whether they want to do so or not. And, and certainly, you know, the burning down of a fish plant is, is there's no way, two ways about it is intimidation, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, that is what you're doing when you're burning down a, a, a plant like that. So, you know, I can, uh, I'm disappointed, obviously, um, that people have, uh, chosen to do this and that they're intimidating fellow non-Christians when, when they're doing something that, um, you know, DFO has said is legal. Now, you, you alluded to the other things that had increased tension in the area of Nova Scotia, but how has this affected the the tension in, in the community between specifically, I guess, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And I'm guessing there's probably a split between the commercial fishers that would support the, the Indigenous uh, fishers as well. Well, I'm, I, I'm from about an hour away from this community. I have not been there since this started because mm-hmm. I don't think it would accomplish anything. It's not mm-hmm. my role to, right. to stick my nose in other people's business. <laughs> I stick to the science, and the science is, you know, the data comes in. Yes. Um, However, we, you know, we have had people contact us um, with a variety of perspectives. So people from a variety of backgrounds, from, you know, uh, First Nations backgrounds, from Acadian backgrounds. We have the French Acadian people Mm -hmm. are uh, well represented in this fishery and and from uh, regular Anglophone uh, community members. um, We've had the full range. And, 
I think what I would say really is that when people have engaged with us and emailed us, often they're saying the same things regardless of what background they come from. There is a there is a set of facts that are being conflated and that people are throwing around in many different ways. Um, and so there's a lot of what people people you know fishermen know their resource in that sense. I think. I think there's sometimes the public has a perception like, oh, the fishermen are manipulating or they're lying or they're doing all these things. And that, that happens the world over. Sure. Um, but fishermen also know a lot about their resource. They know, often know more than scientists do in terms of what is going on with their local area. So you, as a scientist, you know, you have to kind of parse what people are telling you because some of it is good information and some of it is, is their opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's a bit of an art form or a bit of experience involved in being able to do that. Right. Um, but it's very important that you're not dismissive or that we as, a, as people are not dismissive completely of what the commercial fishery is saying because it, it's a very important to them. They are a very important fishery. It's very important to the province. So their place at the table, whatever table that is, is up to the various nations who are negotiating to decide. But it's important that people are, even though, you know, this violence has kind of very much undermined their position, it is still important to listen to the parts of what they're saying that are legitimate. And, and they do have, you know, you can, if you look into it, you can see why people would be upset about something new happening in a fishery that they're heavily invested in. And how you react to that, of course, is how grown up you are, mm. but you know, in, it is, it is understandable for them to be upset, but how we move forward is what, you know, hopefully we'll be able to move forward in a better way than what's happened so far. Yeah. And I understand what you're saying about the investment that these people have certainly in, in the fishery and their livelihood with the, the millions of dollars, their, their, uh, uh, their vessels are, I'm sure, are not inexpensive. There's maintenance. There's all those things that every everyone has to deal with. Um, and you, you know, you mentioned it's a very short period of time that they have to do this. Uh, you also, though, mentioned about uh, that it has uh, produced a lot of wealth for the area, and I'm sure that that has passed into the hands of the the uh, the commercial fishers. So, what is your sense of of that balance between the fishers and the non-indigenous? fishers in terms of their their livelihood and their ability to uh, to produce wealth for themselves as well to to have you know a decent uh, roof over their head and a you know a decent income yeah I think I think that lies really at the heart of what is so difficult about this is that you know that it's it's between the government of Canada and and the Sabaganagadi to negotiate what a moderate livelihood is and you know DFO has done this successfully uh, wrapped up negotiations with a few bands, but um, you know this is not going to be the last of these negotiations that they have to mm-hmm. uh, to do. And you know, people, you know, commercial fishermen are saying that they need to be represented at the table in those negotiations. And uh, my opinion is that they are represented at the table. They're represented by the government of Canada, which is their government, and. It's between that government and the Sadag and Agony to negotiate what a moderate livelihood is. Um, and, you know, my hope is that any Nova Scotian who is fishing legally can have a good livelihood. I mean, I have 
research in my lab that specifically is about this issue about, you know, we're in a, we're in a state of very good fishing right now. What happens in 10, 15 years if catches start to decline? How do we maintain a strong fishery that supports as many people as we can while still keeping, um, keeping it sustainable for generations and generations? Mm. So they're, they're intertwined issues between obviously the legalities of things and science. And, but my hope is that we're going to see out of this is more data and more science that's going to allow us to speak even more directly about what the various effects of these fisheries are. Because I think the less ambiguity we have about science, the better people can focus on talking about what are political and legal issues. Right. Aaron, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. No problem. Very good to talk to you as well, David. That's Professor Aaron McNeil. He's an associate professor in the Department of Biology at Dalhousie University. We've been speaking with him about the ongoing situation uh, with the, in Nova Scotia with the lobster dispute with the Mi'kmaq and Shebeganagadi First Nation specifically, and also around an article written by a colleague of his in the conversation. It's been a pleasure having him on the show. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. <laughs> Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across Canada. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome to Moment of Truth, Nate Selko and Bryce Zimmerman. And uh, they are actually uh, calling in from the West Coast, I understand, beautiful British Columbia. And they're here to talk to us about uh, a, a film and a documentary they made called Moonless Oasis. And this is a documentary about uh, prehistoric glass sponge reefs that are in... BC and it's fascinating stuff they're they're called living dinosaurs and yes glass sponge reefs about 200 feet below the water surface in Howe Sound and uh, they uh, are the team that put this together and bring this uh, really incredible story because as I understand it this is the only place in the world that these sponges are in existence gentlemen is that correct so far that's the only ones they found yes Ah, so far, uh, that just means that they don't know of anywhere else in the world they might be in existence at this point in time. Yeah, they were, uh, they were thought to be extinct 40 million years ago until they discovered them in the 80s in Hecate and Georgia Strait off of Vancouver Island. Uh, those sites are kind of destroyed from fishing and they're much deeper, but then they discovered in the 90s uh, these scary gas diveable glass reefs in Howe Sound. And it's really a fascinating look uh, below the waters of the Georgia Strait, as you mentioned, in, in British Columbia. Uh, guys, I also have to thank you for uh, making the film and showing us, you know, British Columbia, the Georgia Strait, because uh, I love British Columbia. So any time I can get to see BC, I'm always happy to do so. So uh, just getting to see the beautiful British Columbia West Coast is, is always a pleasure. Um, now... Uh, can you take us back a little bit? Now, what you guys are doing, this is captured by a team of citizen scientists. 
First of all, can you please explain what citizen scientists mean? A uh, citizen scientist is basically a term that means when normal people kind of uh, contribute to the scientific movement. Yeah, basically when people spend their free time helping scientific research, you know, research is generally underfunded and, and you know, these people are working hard to gather data and when regular people can partner with them through various organizations to uh, help add to their research, it can really make a huge difference. Um, it would not be possible for most like scientific divers to go to these depths, so it's only with these this team of divers who are highly trained that are able to actually get this uh, footage to show the scientists. Well, there's a number of things that come to mind when you when you put it in that light to me. First of all, as we learn from the film itself, these uh, citizen scientists and some of the people working on this, they're, they're, they put money out of their own pocket for, for some of this study. Is that right? Yeah. They're donating not only their time, but all the, the boat fuel, all the gas, that stuff that they're all paying out of pocket for. It's pretty pretty uh, amazing to learn and and help help me to understand the first time we get a glimpse of the of the bottom of the uh, of the the house sound and when we get to see these uh, sponge reefs is with someone that is dropping a camera over uh, over the, the back of his boat and going down to have a look at that is is that gentleman a scientist what is his role in in sort of looking at the bottom of the of the bays. Um. What is his actual profession? Do you remember? I think he was a, a uh, electrical engineer at some sort of nuclear facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely not related to what he's doing, but yeah, he's he's built that uh, camera out of PVC pipe and uh, figured out a way to make it get down to 250 plus feet. Yeah, he spent like his, with his homemade camera. He spent about 10 years going back and forth across House Sound, just mapping the bottom of it. So almost the, the best. Best uh, bottom data, the bathymetric data that we have in House Out is from him mm. just doing that on his own time. Wow. And, and w- he was doing this, okay, so what would the benefit be for him to to document the bottom of the bay? Where would that information go once he has collected it? So initially he was mapping the bottom because he was trying to find uh, scuba diving sites. He didn't really know, like he had seen the reefs, but he didn't really know what they were until he was talking with Dr. Jeff Marley of Vancouver Aquarium. So yeah, his his goal was just find. He was making a book on scuba diving and how sound out there with his camera. That's great, and so then that got it brought attention, as you say, to the uh, to the Vancouver Aquarium, uh, and and then that was seen as a significant discovery. For sure, yeah. And then, how did how did you guys then get involved in in, in uh, sort of wanting to do more with this and, and document it and get the uh, the divers and the scientists together in order to to make sure this was brought to the greater uh, public's attention? Uh, it was kind of random. Uh, I ran into well, I, I learned of the reef from Hamish's friend, and then I had a very long phone call with Hamish where. You could just, you know, I think it was like a two-hour conversation, and he, he would just hear the passion in his voice about uh, not only diving, but these glass fund trees. Uh, so, yeah, it's very, it was very obvious early on that, like, these people were passionate, and there was a story there for sure. So It's interesting, too, because 
whenever you tell anyone about this and when they told me about this, it's just immediately apparent that you want to know more. <laughs> and that's kind of the best entry point you can have into making a film, right? Mm. And so take us back and tell us a little bit about what you had to do to get this get this going. How long has this been in the making? Uh, I think it's been like a year and a half since the initial idea. Um, Bryce and I are not scuba divers at all. So <laughs> we were we were a bit green going into it as far as what it actually takes to shoot underwater and to add on you know, the depths that they're dealing with. This isn't just like the beginner level patty yeah. uh, depth. This is technical diving, which a lot of the technical gear that we need needs to be very specialized for this type of diving that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was, it was one thing to, you know, we, we set up got all the people together and everything. We had planned for three dives, but getting all the equipment and timing and weather and visibility and everything together like we ended up only getting footage on our sixth and seventh dives um so it was it was one thing to just have to deal with underwater it's another thing added on to be like very deep underwater past the limits of a lot of equipment plus divers having to be technical divers plus it's basically pitch black down there so we had they had to light it they had their lighting style and so it was a it was a pretty triumphant feeling when we finally got that great footage back that you see at the end of the film yeah, and it is very spectacular. So all that footage was shot on your last two attempts? Yeah, dive, dive six and dive seven Okay. In, in this year. Oh, okay. You point out some really good, good points about what it takes to try to pull something like this off. And we get to see, of course, that develop in the film about the just the technical side of things of just making sure the weather is going to cooperate. The, the tide, you know, where's the tide going to be at that time? You, you wouldn't, you know, normally you wouldn't think of that. So it's really great that you guys brought that information in there about how that would all affect these things for you. We also get to see how there was, I guess, somewhat of a close call for one of the divers on, on one of those dives as well, um, where the diver is missing about five or six minutes of the dive. Yeah, so on that particular dive, uh, there was, it was a, they call it a carbon dioxide hit, hit. It's carbon mm-hmm. dioxide poisoning. So basically, when you're breathing, uh, everything is, you know, exponentially worse the deeper you go right and he was feeling anxious and then it just kind of snowballed into a carbon dioxide hit which can be very very dangerous especially at that depth uh mostly because of the panic that ensues uh but yeah she she was able to remain in control uh they were able to figure out what happened after right it's because it doesn't seem like much but the fact that when you if you don't breathe out enough on every exhale, that carbon dioxide builds up, and so it can be something as simple as <clears throat> not being completely relaxed and confident on that day that can contribute to something going terribly wrong. And so it's uh, it's kind of it's wild to see just like that razor's edge that they're on, and it was only due to their like extensive training that that situation wasn't worse. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in in Ottawa. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guests here on Moment of Truth are Nate Slacko. 
and Bryce Zimmerman. And we're talking about their documentary film, Moonless Oasis. And it is a film about glass sponge reefs in uh, uh, Howe Sound, and that is in Georgia Strait on the west coast of British Columbia. And these uh, sponges are located about 200 feet below the water's surface, and it's a film about them uh, going out and attempting to, and actually capturing the footage of these uh, of these sponges, these prehistoric uh, living dinosaurs, as they're called. And um, it, it's right now the only place that they are known to exist in the world. And so it's a fascinating look at not only capturing and and getting these documented and the spectacular footage that we get to see in the film of this wonderful reef, um, but also in terms of what it takes to initiate something like this, because this is not uh, something that is uh, being funded with uh, lots of money. These are, as they call, citizen scientists going through this, and, and they put the team together, the divers, the scientists, and, and captured all of this uh, on film. And we were just talking about one of the one of the situations that developed in the film that we get to see, and that is one of the divers uh, on the dive getting to a little bit of trouble, and and then uh, that was fortunately it didn't go and escalate to something uh, catastrophic for the diver. Uh, guys, I, I wanted to ask you, and I know you're not divers, so I, I get this, but I'm just wondering, do you have? Any idea about the depths? As you said, it's they, these divers going down to about 200 feet. Um, there's also another reef. They were down around 115 or 110 feet, I believe, as well. Um, at what depths do things become complicated? Because I know that uh, the even the, even the air uh, mixture that they are breathing in has to be exact or, or changes. Does that does that change with depths? And and what, do you guys know anything about this? I mean, from what we've picked up, anything past 100 feet is when it starts to get uh, a little bit more interesting. Uh, just whenever they're uh, introducing mixed gases, I think that's where things mm. become a lot more complicated and the stakes are a little higher. Mm. You're relying on you know, multiple life support systems mm. to stay alive and making sure like, they need to work. Mm-hmm. I think a big part of it is the as the depth as they go further down, the kind of relative density of the gas goes up, which is like so it gets harder and harder to breathe it, which mm-hmm. is why they incorporate helium to their gas mixtures as they go deeper down because it is a lighter gas, and so um, that's a big thing too. It's being able to mix helium and oxygen and nitrogen in these right ways for the right depths that allow them to then go down to these. To these places in film, even though they only have a few minutes and they have to be very coordinated at the bottom. And then on the way up, they have to do several hours of decompression to, to be able to come to the surface safely. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. I was going to ask about that, about the decompression and the actual time that they actually had uh, to go down. It, it, I think it takes, I think it was referred to in the film, about 30 minutes to get down there. Is that? It takes about five minutes to get down. They can go oh. straight down. Oh, they can. For a bit, and then it takes a very long time to come up. Yeah, because uh, the bends and, and decompression, like you said. So, in all, from start to finish, when you you get everybody together, uh, I mean, we even get a sense of of looking at the technical uh, requirements of these divers, getting making sure their equipment is exact, making sure it's all checked out, uh, how much breathing time they have, they check their meters for all of that kind of stuff, which we get a sense of as well. 
Um, but from start to finish, once you get out on the boat, you get out to the location, the divers get ready, they jump, they, they get into the water, they go down, they take what they need to do, uh, and then they have to come back up. So what is, a, what is a, a time reference for this in terms of a day for you guys uh, from start to finish? Once, they're, once we're out on the boat and we're at the site and they're getting in the water, generally their, their time they spend on the bottom is around 20 to 30 minutes. And their calculation is for every minute they spend on the bottom, they need to spend three minutes in decompression. Mm. So if it's a 30-minute bottom time, they're going to spend an hour and a half decompressing on the way up. Right. So the dives usually last around two hours. Right. And, and decompression, I, I know that they went. They had a diver that met them about halfway down, I think. Is that what that decompression process is about? Yeah, so they, they'll uh, you know, slowly ascend to the surface and uh, obviously like safety is very important in these types of things so they have redundancies and a team of safety divers that will come and meet them uh, while they're decompressing just to see if there's anything that can be done to help them. Yeah, for every diver on the boat there's a safety diver as well for the deep sites so that everyone has a dedicated kind of person who's responsible for them and has backup uh, tanks of all the gases that they're carrying in case one of them fails, backup equipment, and so it's it's a very it's quite complicated to do this, and and we show as much as we can, and I think mm-hmm. that that's the that's the reality of it is that doing this is not easy, and it's not hard, it is very hard, and so right. it's uh it's definitely fascinating that they're willing to commit to this on their own time. It, it sure is, and, and um, I, I sure hope that people will go uh, check the film out, uh, Moonless Oasis, on, on CBC Gem, uh, which it is streaming on, and people can check that out, as I said, there, and uh, get a sense and get a look at these these beautiful glass sponge reefs that that we get to see. How excited or how um, how relieved were you guys uh, when you got finally got to see this this beautiful footage after getting down there and, and with such a struggle for you guys as you said it was only the last two days you got a chance to finally get this stuff and have a look at it how happy were you were you to see what you saw well yeah we kind of feel like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong mm-hmm. and unfortunately with the diving like we were handing over the underwater camera system and essentially crossing our fingers for two hours, <laughs> hoping something would come back. And it, like to see him come to the surface with it and see the camera still intact, <laughs> just that <laughs> itself was a great feeling. And then to go home and check it and see not only was it the camera recorded, but the visibility was the best it could possibly be. Uh, we were both very, very excited. We, uh, I don't think we let ourselves really feel the, the true risk of what we were undertaking. You know, we had to get the footage. Mm-hmm. There's no question. But when it comes up after like that final dive and we actually had something and it kind of makes the whole film work, we were definitely pretty relieved because I don't know what we would have done if we didn't get it. So it was definitely that final like, okay, thank goodness we got this and we can move on. Yeah, yeah. I bet you you did uh, uh, breathe a sigh of relief after that. I can well imagine. And you know, the fact you just said you guys didn't really allow yourselves to feel that risk—that that's really interesting. Um, you know, because I can well imagine everything that was uh, that you had to put on the line for this to and pull all this to, uh, together. So once you got it, 
What is your hope that you want to do with this this footage, and what do you want people to to learn? Well, I think the biggest thing, like not. It's, it's beautiful footage to look at, but one thing that you really need to see is like the way they lit the reef really shows you the expanse, mm. the size of it. Mm-hmm. That's what makes these sites special. So like we just want people to be aware that these exist in house. Like, I didn't know they existed until we started this project. So if people are aware of it, then maybe they can, you know, they have more opportunities to care about the fate of them. And the idea, too, is connecting people with something that's just around them, right? You know, I think we often look to global uh, environmental initiatives or ways to help, you know, the world be better. And in this case, it's like something that's very close at hand. And I mean, I think for everyone in Ontario and BC, there's other things near us that we'd be looking more closely at to protect rather than, you know, setting our sights further abroad. And speaking of protecting, we also get a sense and a look at at what some of the the possible threats to these reefs are: um, fishing and the the, uh, the the traps, the the lobster and the, the prawns that that people are fishing for, because people are dropping traps in in uh, the area, uh, and that can damage them. How delicate are these these sponges? Uh, they're very delicate. Uh, they're made of silica, and the name glass sponge kind of gives you an idea of just how delicate they are. Uh, it's any form of bottom contact that are, is the biggest immediate risk, as well as climate change. Uh, but even like if you're scuba diving down there and your fin brushes one, that's all it takes really to destroy one. Wow. Yeah, and the big thing is when they've seen a trap that's dropped, say, fresh, it'll obviously crush the sponge right where the trap is, but if they come back months later, they'll see that it's kind of expanded outwards and they can have a very adverse effect on like a large area, even though the contact is small. Really? Wow. That That's fascinating to know that. And uh, as you say, these things are, are how old? They're prehistoric. So what are we talking about? Um, I think the, the, the animal itself was, was yeah, prehistoric. Like they used to be all over the earth. There's lots of places in Europe where hills and, and mountains are made of essentially the remains of old glass sponge reefs. Um, but like I said, they're about to be extinct. And so then when they found these ones, I think uh, someone can correct me if they're listening, but uh, I think several thousand years old would be the age of the actual reefs in House Sound. Um, they're not quite as old, but they're the only remnant remaining from the ones 40 million years ago. And some of them looked quite large, so it looks like they continue to grow. They just don't grow to a certain they, – they just keep growing. But they're also – I understand they're filters. They filter the water. Yeah, they uh, – like we don't know a lot about the sponge still, and that's why the research is important. But what we do know is uh, their capabilities of filtering uh, a very large quantity of water in a short amount of time. Wow, that's fascinating in itself. So why, with this discovery, for instance, why then are we not seeing uh, more action taken? And maybe you guys are working towards this to get this protected. Um, I think like the there are groups that are working towards that, like the Marine Life Sanctuary Society and the Underwater Council of British Columbia. They're kind of working on advocacy um, and helping people understand it. But a big focus for them has been to um, document these sites so they can take it to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, DFO is you know unable to necessarily go look for these things. So when they can 
put together comprehensive information and, and give it to the government, they can't really ignore it. So they have um, done that in the past, and several sites have been protected, but they're still <clears throat> working on getting other sites protected. Part of that process is the, the stuff that you see in the bill that we're following, and, and then kind of documenting these areas so that hopefully over time more and more of them will be protected. And I think for us, a big part of the film is that we hope that more people are aware of this so that there is more of that pressure because the Department of Fisheries Notions um, doesn't really act unless people are putting that pressure on them. So I guess that's a call to action for anyone who cares about the sponges to write to DFO and tell them to protect them. I guess the other thing about awareness is that you definitely want awareness in the immediate area and especially with the the people that are fishing in the area. We did get to see a fisher, um, uh, someone that is fishing in the area, and it sounded to me like, like at least from his perspective, that he was aware of it and that they – but I wasn't sure if they, they are not fishing the area because they are aware of it or – it, it's it's delicacy, or I, I, you know, it wasn't it wasn't clear to me what uh, what the fishers in the area are are uh, doing uh, either for or against this. A major thing is that they don't want to catch things, and they don't catch things in the reefs themselves. That's not their goal. Okay, I think part of it is that. Um, the commercial product fishermen are just getting better and better with the technologies to be able mm. to avoid those areas. Um, I think there were issues in the past, but now that everyone's aware, they understand the value to the whole fishery and the ecosystem mm. that, that those reefs bring, and they don't want to wreck them. So I think it's actually it's more often the kind of recreational product fishers and people who don't know mm. who are causing those issues and kind of creating a bad name for everyone. So it's it's a it's a back and forth, and the fishermen that we spoke to have, you know, they're operating in good faith. They don't want to wreck the sponges, and, and they do everything they can to avoid them. Mm. Hey guys, the name of the film, Moonless Oasis, of course, I'm, I'm guessing it's entitled that because you're at a depth where I guess the sunlight doesn't penetrate that that far down. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know at what depth the sunlight starts to diminish or, or, or disappear? It, w- it was quite, not shocking, but it was really fascinating to see that darkness and yeah. just see this little glimmer of light from one of the other uh, 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 divers initially. And I thought, geez, I wouldn't, you would not want to get lost down there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, it depends on the visibility, but I'd say like it can, you can get sunlight down to a hundred feet, but once you get past there, that's when it starts to get really dark mm. uh, based on the footage that we've seen. So, Yeah. Yeah, fascinating stuff. It really, you know, again, looks like you're on another planet, uh, but fascinating that you guys were able to capture this and bring it to everyone's attention and get those beautiful shots of those very delicate reefs that are that are out, out there and need to get uh, awareness out about them. So congratulations to both of you on this film. Thank you. And uh, guys, is there anything else you think is important to mention just before we finish up? No, I think you covered it. I mean, I think we mostly just want to invite viewers to watch it and to experience what these people go through and how much of a difference perseverance can make in, in protecting important ecosystems. Okay, fabulous. Well, we want to thank you once again for taking time to join us on the show. Thank you very thank much. You. So, uh, Nate, I, I just want to make sure I got your last name correct. 
Slacko. Slacko. Okay. Thank you. So, pardon me? No worries. Okay. You've been listening to the voices of Nate Flacco and Bryce Zimmerman, and we've been talking to them about their film, Moonless Oasis. And it's a look at the prehistoric glass sponge reefs off the coast of British Columbia in Georgia Strait and uh, in British Columbia. And it's a fascinating look at it. And you can get a look at it as well by going to CBC's uh, Gem, and you can watch it there. Moonless Oasis is what it is called. Fascinating look at these reefs that uh, are on the bottom of that uh, Howe Sound area. Gentlemen, thanks once again for bringing this film to our attention and raising this awareness of these glass sponge prehistoric reefs called Living Dinosaurs. And thanks for taking the time to join us. And that is Moment of Truth at this point in time. We always, of course, enjoy you joining us each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.